and welcome to the Signpost Inn podcast, a space at life's crossroads to connect with God and find direction. Pour yourself a drink, grab a seat, and join us on the back porch for a friendly conversation about Christian prayer, spirituality, and faithful theology. My name's Matt. And I'm Brandon, and we're really glad you're here. The Signpost Inn podcast is brought to you by the Signpost Inn ministry, where we offer spiritual direction, retreats and sabbatical residencies, and lots of resources and training. You can find out more about what we do and support us by visiting signpostin.org. This episode is another one in my series where I interview experts and practitioners from across the spectrum about contemplation and contemplative prayer. I'm asking, what exactly is Christian contemplation and contemplative prayer? Is it new age nonsense or does it lie at the very heart of the Christian life? And if, as I believe, it's the latter, how exactly does the average Joe do it? In this episode, I interview Dr. Kyle Strobel from Biola University. And if you haven't already listened to my previous interviews, I really encourage you to do so. And finally, if you enjoy this show, will you please take a minute or two to send it to a friend and then drop us a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. That really helps other people find us. Thank you. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody. My guest today is Dr. Kyle Strobel, and he's an associate professor of spiritual theology at Biola's Talbot School of Theology. Dr. Strobel earned his PhD from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, and his areas of interest include systematic theology, Jonathan Edwards, spiritual formation and prayer, and he's the author of several, several popular and academic books and articles, including Where Prayer Becomes Real, How Honesty with God Transforms Your Soul, which is your most recent one. And then a couple others that I've noticed, Beloved Dust, Drawing Close to God by Discovering the Truth About Yourself, Formed for the Glory of God, Learning the Spiritual Practices of Jonathan Edwards, and a whole bunch of other books. But you also co-edited and wrote parts of the book that actually you're here for today, which is Embracing Contemplation, Reclaiming a Christian Spiritual Practice. That was the book that I read, have been enjoying thoroughly, and Dr. Strobel, thank you, because that was, there's a lot of good stuff in there, and that's what I want to talk to you today about, which is part of this process I'm on of interviewing people across the spectrum about what contemplation is, what contemplative prayer is, and many of the things in the book really answer that question spot on. So before we jump into that, though, would you mind sharing what's your kind of story or experience with contemplation, theological background? How'd you get to this place where you are and into this topic? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Brandon. No, it's it's great to be with you. And yeah, I, I love talking about this stuff. So <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> You know, my own story, I, I grew up at Willow Creek, so some of the um, Willow Creek Community Church. So for those of you who know, the kind of seeker-sensitive movement, the megachurch, I, I grew up, my dad is Lee Strobel, for those of you who know the kind of apologetics world, and my dad's, you know, both book and movie now, <laughs> Case for Christ. And so I grew up in, in the kind of heart of evangelicalism, as I understood it. And it was, you know, I, I grew in some pretty profound ways but they were highly superficial. And so I grew kind of in excitement. I kind of learned to equate God's acceptance of me with my excitement and zeal for the things of him. And, and so it led to a very busy 
and a very kind of plugged in sort of Christianity, if I could put it that way. You know, I thought being a Christian meant being at church multiple times a week, doing things like that. That's kind of what it meant. And, and you know, after high school, I, I had felt a call to go into kind of biblical studies, which I, I had never studied the Bible before. I no, I actually had no academic ambition either. No one thought I was going to go to college. So come July, I thought God wants me to go. You know, I, I knew I had to go to college and I hadn't applied yet. And it was July, you know. Wow. And so <laughs> I just, we, I found a local Christian college that would, you know, let me stay at home the first year and apply that late. And I had to put a major down. So I put biblical studies and and what was interesting about that is, is everyone's surprised I had this kind of academic gear, but also I, I suddenly felt like scripture was accessible to me, like I could read it. Up until that point, it was kind of a magical text that someone else held the keys to, and I never could really grasp it. And the, the situation, I, I didn't realize this till years later, and, and it was only when my mentor, John Coe, who I co-edited this, this book with and co-write the prayer book with, he talked about his own story. And I said, that's exactly what happened to me. You know, it was an interesting mirror. And the more I grew in knowledge, the less I prayed. And the, the kind of, the more I grew in, in highly kind of cognitive and intellectual modes, the less I, I kind of embraced things like prayer and contemplation. And um, a person who had become a really important figure in my life at that point was John Ortberg, who, for those of you who don't know Ortberg well, he kind of, he, he's, he was highly influenced by Dallas Willard. And, and he has said of himself that he kind of sees his writings and speaking as kind of Willard for dummies, as is, is, is he talks about it. So he was my pastor going up. He, he was, he was at Willow Creek. And so he's the person I would go to. And He's the first person that kind of turned me on to this whole other sort of conversation. And I, I realized then that I, I wasn't your typical academic. I, I could do it, but I didn't care. <laughs> like I didn't, uh, I wasn't driven by the questions for their own sake. I had real existential quandaries about life with God. And so I started kind of gravitating towards these questions before I knew there was such a thing as spiritual formation, before I kind of knew that people had always talked about this sort of stuff. Um, eventually, I, I came to the program I now teach in and discovered under my mentor now, John Coe, that there's something called spiritual theology, or we call spiritual theology. You know, it, it actually goes by a lot of different names in the tradition, which is one of the confusions, I think. And even the kind of Protestant tradition has volumes upon volumes of it. I mean, as much as any tradition and as rich as any tradition, but I had just never met anyone who'd ever seen any of it. It just kind of disappeared, you know, into the sands of time. And so it was, it was actually kind of me coming here and discovering, oh my, oh my goodness. Like, and this is what my background, you mentioned the book form for the glory of God. That book was a little bit of an early, it's like an early evangelical view of spiritual formation. And, and I just was discovering these things like, why have I, why did I never hear any of this, you know? And, and, and part of that was the centrality of contemplation and how early evangelicals kind of Puritan folks, how, how they would distinguish something like meditation from contemplation, even from what we might call today as more meditative prayers, like what they would call soliloquy which is modeled after the psalmist's, oh, my soul that is within me, 
you know, why is the psalmist praying and then immediately and suddenly kind of talking to themselves? Like what, what's going on there? And the Puritans actually developed this notion of soliloquy as this kind of mode of kind of navigating your soul in the presence of God as a form of prayer. And so one of the things we do here, you know, it's we, we kind of recognize it's a little weird to be teaching graduate level education and spiritual formation. Like they kind of, you know, rub against each other a bit. But one of the things we did, and this was true of me as a student, I remember coming into John Coe's class and the first day of class after introducing spiritual theology, he said, okay, here's what you're going to do this week. You're going to spend an hour in prayer and I'm going to kind of guide you through a handful of prompts. And I remember coming back next week and he's just saying, oh, so well, how, you know, how was that? We're all like, what on earth was that? Like, I was, you know, and I was lost. I slept about three or four different times. I woke up. I felt pretty bad about myself. I don't know if that was the goal, you know, like, and, and just the realization of like this whole world, I just had never been not only kind of called into, but shepherded into. And so that was my first kind of foray into, into kind of contemplation and that, that being an aspect of this. And then, you know, I, it might be helpful for me to draw a distinction that I use because What's interesting, and some of this is semantic, which is fine, but today we talk about contemplative prayer, and the tradition never talked that way. I, I, I've, I've wondered if I should do a study on this and find out who is the first person that said this, because actually there, it's a kind of a category mistake, according to the tradition. I'm pretty sure it was probably the centering prayer, folks, because centering prayer is trying to recover a form of wordless prayer through the cloud of unknowing, which is a kind of British mystical text. Historically, in, in every Christian tradition, there was contemplation. And that was understood a little differently. Sometimes it was understood as the mind's ascent to God. Sometimes it was more of like a holistic personal sense, how I understand it a little bit more. Like, usually when we say mind, we don't usually, you know, it would be unhelpful to kind of abstract that away from the affections and the emotions and things, but the, the kind of ascent of the mind to God and the person to God. And then there was forms of prayer they would call wordless prayer. I, I think what's ended up happening is we've kind of conflated wordless prayer with contemplation and called it contemplative prayer. Now that isn't the end of the world, of course, <laughs> if we're just labeling things. The problem is the act of contemplation tends to disappear a little bit. Yeah. Can, okay. Let me pause you for a second. Mm -hmm. Cause that's going to, there's questions I have there that I want to ask mm -hmm. you, but before I launch into that too much, let me backtrack you just a hair. Can you give me a short or not? So it doesn't really matter. Can you give me a definition of spiritual theology? Cause that's one mm -hmm. of the, one of the distinctions that I noticed. Cause I kind of jotted down. Here's, here's some critical distinctions that mm -hmm. seem to be problematic within this whole space. And one of them is actually a false distinction between uh, you, you guys talk about it as being between spirituality and theology. And is yeah. that what this spiritual theology is about? It's like, these things are not actually distinct. Yeah, that's right. Very, very famously in the 20th century, um, Hans Urs von Balthasar, who is one of the greatest minds of modern theology, he was a Roman Catholic theologian. His book labeled Prayer is generally considered one of the greatest works on prayer ever penned. And it truly is a, just a brilliant, brilliant piece. But von Balthasar, I read him as a, as, a, as a grad student, and I remember he said something, and, and lots of folks have said something similar. And it's basically that up until the Enlightenment, theology and spirituality were united. The Enlightenment hits... 
we separated them out, theology becomes in service to the academy and therefore dies because it, it, it's cut off now from spirituality, which is its life. Spirituality gets unmoored from theology and ceases to be distinctively Christian. And I, I think that's exactly what's happened. And so part of my own PhD work was to go, you know, Edwards was right on the cusp of the enlightenment. And he was like the last, one of the last Protestants on that line who was still seeing them as one thing. And so I wanted to see like, well, how did we used to think when we, we understood these as one thing? And, you know, someone like Edwards, it's interesting. If you asked Edwards what theology, he would have called theology divinity and you would have called the theologian a divine. But if you asked him, well, what is divinity then? What is theology? He would say it's the art of living unto God by Christ. And so notice like the, the lived reality is already intrinsically kind of caught up in what the theologian does. No theologian today is going to be saying that, right? Because that's, I mean, they might say it, <laughs> and whether or not that's what they're doing is a different question, right? Right. Okay. So that makes sense to me. So this is, so the, the problem, the modern problem, and I, boy, do I resonate with this, is like theology is something you do in the classroom write it you know i've often yeah. said it's like i can write a darn good essay about god <laughs> right yeah. like i could probably answer all the questions pretty accurately with a decent amount of knowledge about god whereas and and then there's this broken off thing i as that has something to do i don't you know i don't even know if we know what the word spirituality means today it kind of means feeling something i think but what i hear you saying is that prior to this division Theology, knowing God, learning about God actually wasn't distinct from then relating to him or having any that's kind right. of conversation with him or how it impacted how I lived. Is that's that right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And for it, so for, let me give you an example. So in the year 1700, there's a Dutch reformed theologian named Wilhelmus A. Brockel. No one reads this. Actually, he's, <laughs> his, his book somehow got translated into, I think, Mandarin, and they're like a runaway bestseller in China today. It's a very weird kind of dynamic. But this, <laughs> this book, it was a four-volume systematic theology called A Christian's Reasonable Service. And in it, in the last volume, although this is true throughout, he decides to kind of give an account of um, indwelling corruption. So it's, okay, what's, there, there's still, the, you know, okay, we might be saved and regenerated, reborn. But there's still all sorts of things mess with our souls. He then makes a fourfold distinction between spiritual darkness, spiritual deadness, spiritual backsliding, and spiritual desertion. Spiritual desertion is how Protestants talk about the dark night of the soul. Sometimes they just say dark night of the soul. They typically would say spiritual desertion. So he then says every Christian is going to experience all of these. And he, he has these really kind of, and the way he's doing this, and this is how we think about spiritual theology at Talbot, you know, part of what this takes is, I have to navigate my own life with God in the presence of God. And so, you know, when John and I sat down to write a book on prayer, one of the things we kind of said is we, it's going to be meaningless to write a book on prayer unless we can explain to people why their minds wander when they pray. That's a, that's a question that a, the, a kind of typical modern theologian probably won't even ask, let alone answer if they're thinking, well, what is prayer? They might do theory. They might say, it might be, you know, this helpful stuff, but, when it comes to the lived reality of it. And so some of the questions that are gonna come in for us are gonna be things like, what, what is growth? Right, obviously that's a clear question, but also like, well, what is the experience of growth? 
what is the nature of a self and what does it mean for a self to be indwelt by love? How do we understand it? Can we talk developmentally like a developmental sequence of maturation, like scripture seems to think that the Christian life will go through? How do we talk about failure in that? How do we talk about, you know, so all those questions yeah. are going to get caught up in what spiritual theologians kind of do. Yeah. This makes me think of in my tradition. So as a Lutheran, mm-hmm. Luther talks about um, the person who can properly distinguish the law and the gospel not intellectually, but actually in practice, deserves the title of a theologian. And Mm -hmm. that to me is where there's that connection of, it's not so much that you can write down the correct answers, it's that you actually understand how they affect and work and interplay in your life and on somebody else's. And I'm hearing that here too is, and maybe that kind of leads into the question about contemplation. It's earlier you talked about having that existential desire, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, it's like, and that's been a lot of what's driven me is, Mm Again, people have talked, I could define prayer, but the million dollar question was how? And when you said, we've got to answer what to do when your mind wanders, like, yeah, no, I don't think anybody, and no, no offense to my parents or anybody else listening, I don't think anybody ever thought to talk about what it meant that God was personal to how I prayed. (laughs) Like, that's right. I knew God was personal. I knew I should pray, but those two things had no connection whatsoever, mm. which is weird. I mean, maybe that was my fault, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think that, I think that's often the case. And I think we, we often don't talk about the things where actually we, we share the most in common. Mm. So when I walk in a class and I say, you know, whenever I go to pray, my mind immediately starts wandering to all sorts of things. Like I've never been to a place where people are like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Like I've never had that experience. I close my eyes and I see light, you know, <laughs> I just, I've never heard that, you know, and it's, you know, it's interesting too, the Lutheran tradition is one of the traditions we've been influenced by in terms of that existential link. I mean, this is one of the Luther's kind of charisms, if we can talk that way, is that he brings this existential instinct to theology. And so it's not surprising that we have folks who I think I'd call spiritual theologians in the Lutheran tradition, like Kierkegaard and like Bonhoeffer, for instance, are two very existential kind of theologians who are theologizing before the face of God. And in many ways, that's what the spiritual theologian needs to do. And then you need to kind of navigate, well, okay, what, what, how, you know, how do we, because in many ways, that's what we're doing, you know, to do spiritual formation and spiritual theology are, are navigating the presence of God, right? We've been called before the face of this one. The problem is when we come into the presence of God, um, as first John three says, your heart might condemn you, your conscience might pang, your guilt and shame arise, like all sorts of things come to the surface. And unfortunately, we get all sorts of education on what we should think, but the whole time we're experiencing these things, we just don't know how to navigate and no one's shepherding us into those. And so, you know, to my surprise, the tradition is full of folks who did this work and I just had never seen the the most of it. I mean, you hear of some of the, like Kierkegaard or Bonhoeffer is a good example of folks people know, but I was shocked at how much of the tradition talked about this stuff just openly and readily, even the kind of just evangelicals used to talk this way all the time and then at some point we decided that things like contemplation were scary and right new age or something right well let's <laughs> let me turn the conversation to that then because mm-hmm. that is i think a continual conversation i'm having i guess can you give a can you give a definition of contemplation in this context and then maybe we can launch into how it differs and everything else but what yeah. what, what is it 
Yeah. So let me give two definitions really quick. One would be, and this is going to be one of the things I'll tell my students, for instance, is and I would say the same thing on spiritual formation. There isn't like a group of people who care about spiritual formation and other Christians. Everyone believes in spiritual formation. There's this idea that spiritual formation is a view of something. It, it, it isn't right. It's a, it's like the atonement. If you say, I believe in the atonement, you're not saying I believe in one kind of it. You're saying I believe in the thing. And now we can talk about the details, but that means, you know, Lutheran is going to talk about spiritual with this distinct bent normally. A Catholic is going to talk with a certain kind of bent, someone who's reformed. So right? there, there's going to be these different kind of angles on it. And so with contemplation, however you read Colossians three, set your mind on things above. That is, that is going to be a view of contemplation. So there's no Christian that doesn't have a view of contemplation. Now, there might be Christians that don't have never developed a view, <laughs> but presumably no one reads that verse and says, sorry, Paul, I'm just not interested in that. <laughs> so, like, we, so whatever else that is, that is contemplation. Um, a, a really helpful definition is given by Andrew Louth. Andrew Louth is an Eastern Orthodox historical theologian, a very significant kind of figure in his own right. And he, he actually just says, you know, if you want to know what the Christian form of contemplation is, he turns to Psalm 27.4. And he says, if you break down the word contemplation, con, meaning with, and templum, meaning temple, it is being with God in his temple. And therefore, if you remember Psalm 27, you get this, you know, one thing I've asked the Lord that I shall seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This kind of entering in, notice like we're entering into the presence of God, we're gazing, we're kind of setting our mind upon him and upon the things of him. You get something similar in like a Philippians 4, 8, you know, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now that thinking isn't just what we normally think of as kind of, I don't know, memorize them or maybe, but it's like, you're setting your mind. And, and again, in scripture, mind doesn't usually just mean kind of intellect. It's this, you're, you're focusing here. So your affections are moving towards these sorts of things. And in many ways, one of the, one of the ways I like to think about this, it's, it's, and some of these words, you know, maybe are more or less helpful, but kind of recalibrating your soul around reality it's to, to turn to the, one of the greatest hymns in my mind, you know, tune my heart to sing thy grace, right? What we're doing is we're, we're kind of trying to tune our hearts to the grace of God, to the reality of God. And, you know, one of the ways to think about this, and this is a way I, I think is helpful, is, you know, faith is in scripture always ordered to its perfection, which is the beatific vision. So if you think about a passage like 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now I see through a mirror dimly, then in eternity, I will see face to face, right? So that face to face vision is what we call the beatific vision. In 1 John 3, 2, you know, then you will be like him for you will see him as he is. So scripture understands our formation through the lens of sight and one day we will stand face to face with God and we will be transformed before him. Now we walk by faith, not by sight. So we don't have physical sight, but contemplation is this now practicing the sight of faith so that as I set my heart upon him, 
as I kind of gaze in this mirror by faith. And in the mirror there is interesting that, that Paul uses the language of mirror. That is the face of Christ, right? Then I will see face to face. Now I see by faith the face of Christ. And there's other mirrors. James 1 says scripture's a mirror. The elements of the Eucharistic table are a kind of mirror. Like I, I come into the presence of God and I contemplate. I am with him in his temple, gazing upon his beauty. And so there's this, this practicing of this gaze that then reorders my soul around around reality. Okay, I'm gonna. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I'm just want to pause you for a second. So, okay, one of the things that you're saying that I'm getting is you're it's you're using a f- affective language, right? You're mm-hmm. talking about what I love, what I'm motivated by, what I'm oriented towards. Is that a fair way to say it? And yeah. you're not the first person to say to me that contemplation is a kind of gazing. What what I think I'm still kind of trying to figure out is. Are we using that somewhat metaphorically? Like, yes. in other words, <laughs> obviously, you know, I mean, obviously, obviously, yes. But I mean, as you said, scripture uses this idea of sight. But then you start saying things like orienting my heart. And I think the question that comes into my mind is like, maybe it's a dumb question, but how do I see something with my heart, dude? <laughs> you know, like, come on. I don't understand that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, and that's this is where we are kind of, there is a kind of attending of soul that we, and here's where people are going to struggle. Again, this is where it's important to not just talk about the kind of habituating these things. We, we are called to habituate certain things, but never raw habituation, right? It's not like grit your teeth, make it happen. When you try to contemplate, your heart's going to contemplate all sorts of things. See, the problem is the problem isn't how to contemplate. Contemplation is super easy. You do it every day all the time. Um, no one has to teach me how to contemplate how bad the Lakers are. <laughs> I just do, all right? No one has to teach my son how to contemplate Legos right? because they're in his heart. He, he delights in contemplating them. So human beings as such are contemplating things. This is something I learned from Jonathan Edwards. Actually, he talks this way. Like the, to be human is to contemplate. There's, there's no other way to be human. The problem is how do we contemplate something our heart doesn't want? And so there's going to be this movement of, you know, you thinking of even that Philippians 4 passage. Well, I want to take what is good and true and beautiful and what is honorable. What is, I, want, I want to take these things. I want to hold them before me. I, I want to contemplate in and through scripture. I want to think about God as good. But then I have to be, to use a phrase that Paul uses in Colossians 4 too, I have to be watchful over myself. Because the danger is that any practice shuts my heart down rather than opens it up. Whereas when I give myself the contemplation and, and here's the temptation in prayer and the temptation in contemplation, the temptation in prayer is to think my mind's wandering. I have to learn how to not do that. That's just, that's just not going to go anywhere for you. That's now I've got to turn to self-help ways to try to fix my problems. So I could, I don't know what, clean myself up enough to be received by God, right? There's all sorts of weird stuff going on there. Now with contemplation, the Puritans would often differentiate contemplation from meditation by saying in meditation, you are still being very watchful of your soul. And you're often turning to soliloquy when your mind wanders. Wow, Lord, look, my soul is within me. I don't care about any of this right now. You know, and you kind of, now you address that for contemplation. They wanted to more kind of bracket. So if my mind wanders to how bad the Lakers are or something, I would just kind of bracket that, attend to it for a second and put it away and reset my mind on God. 
Um, that, that could be helpful. I find that it is more helpful to take a moment with the Lord and say, Lord, my heart is like a compass and it's true north is not you. And, and I, when I come into your presence, the treasures of my heart are laid bare and they're not you. There are other, there are other things. And, I, and I, 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 when I try to contemplate you, I contemplate them instead. And so now it's actually bringing these things with me in his presence. Like part of what I'm doing in contemplating him is coming before him, holding these things, kind of drawing near. And in, in, one, in one real sense, contemplating the truth of myself before him. Um, you know, this is why when Calvin started the Institutes of the Christian Religion, you know, he says that there, there's two forms of the knowledge of God that always have to, or two forms of knowledge that always have to be held together, knowledge of God, knowledge of self. But then he says, if you, you cannot contemplate God, unless you immediately turn back toward yourself. And that's where these two things, like we shouldn't disappear in our contemplation. We should, we should be very much present and offering ourselves kind of drawing near to him. And so part of what our mind wandered, how we navigate that, I think is this constant kind of handing ourselves over that needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there. I think that it's almost like some of this gets lost because in the current context, we you the thing you said we're always contemplating. Mm -hmm. But what I'm what I'm experiencing is in my own life and people that I work with, yeah. But we're we're completely disassociated from that fact. We don't even notice that. Yeah, yeah. I'm contemplating YouTube. I'm contemplating. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, I, I'm contemplating the drivers on the road that I'm mad at. I'm contemplating my worries or whatever else. It's and and I think you're helping me see it. It's like that really resonates with me. It's not so much that I'm thinking about those things. It's that I'm like kind of absorbed with those things. Like, yeah, it's the right kind now of world I'm thinking about in. what YouTube video I'm going to watch next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? totally. And, or, and it's not even that I'm thinking about it. It's that, well, I have this kind of draw to it. Mm -hmm. When we hang up, I might go there, you know, and, and I'm, so that's kind of making sense to me, but I think then, yeah, that question of how do I then shift from being sort of always in the rut of filling my heart, my affections, my desires with whatever it is I'm normally filling it with to setting my heart on God. I, it, the picture of your son and contemplating Legos really helps me. Like, <laughs> I kind of get that. Like, I go, oh, I think I have a glimmer of what it might look like to delight in God the way he delights in Legos. Yeah. How to get there, I'm not sure, but that, I mean, that helps me kind of grasp this. Well, and, you know, one of the, one of the expressions of the tradition I have found helpful is the most of the reason we struggle with acts of contemplation, because there's, there's kind of a, let's say there's kind of a general, general contemplation, right? That's my son with Legos. Like, it's not like he's working on the habit of, like, I mean, he just loves it, right? It's grabbed his loves. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, early dating. You know, like it's like you don't you don't have to work hard at contemplating the person you're dating. It's just you're just flooded, right? Your loves have been united around a singular focus. Well, then that's one kind of thing. Um, then there's like habituation of contemplation. So now we're giving ourselves to contemplation. What derails this is faulty expectations. 
there's a lot of fantasy that comes in with with what oh it's gonna be so good i'm gonna go on a silent retreat i'm gonna contemplate you know it's like that sound that on paper that's what's gonna happen more often than not you're gonna go you're gonna sit there and your body's gonna reject it your mind's gonna go all and you're gonna go i feel worse than when i went that was a nightmare right no one no one leaves an hour of trying to contemplate God feeling like, wow, I'm killing it at the spiritual life. Like I'm really doing well, you know, you leave feeling like, I don't even know what that even was like it. And so one of the expressions that comes in is, is, is purgative contemplation. That contemplation has to have this kind of purgative function to it. And so one of the things we should expect, and as I'll tell my students this all the time, it's the same thing with like fasting. It's like fasting is a great discipline. If you want to know how angry you are, (laughs) <laughs> right. Cause that's, what's going to happen. Like what you're going to tap into is as anger contemplation. So like, if you want to know like where the loves of your heart, like where are your treasures really practice contemplation. And that's going to reorder our, our kind of expectations a little bit. And now it's going to be, well, how do I then take the treasures of my heart are and use those as vehicles to offer myself to kind of just present myself to God. And to contemplate God as the one who is kind of bored with him, but is much more interested in YouTube or is, you know, totally uninterested in, in half of what his word says, or, you know, wh- whatever it is, like, how can I actually contemplate him in reality? The danger of the Christian life is that we try to live it in fantasy. And God is always trying to reground us in reality. And the problem is for many of us, reality, that's a harsh mirror. Like we're not, we don't want to look in that mirror. And so we try to send our Christian avatar to pray and to contemplate and, and, you know, and we don't, and when our, when our mind does wander, we think we just need to shut it down. And so we actually become less of ourselves in the presence of God, where the presence of God is the place where actually you could finally realize you. And that sounds like that connection between there's a, what I'm hearing there is that connection between knowing myself and knowing God. There's a, when I'm in the sanctuary, when I'm in the temple mm-hmm. and I'm with God in the temple, I am the one there with him. That's you know? right. Yeah. And some of the things I'm bringing in is I'd really rather be watching YouTube right now. Mm-hmm. And whether the, you know, this part for me, at least this is part of the discipline. It's like, I'd really rather be doing this right now, mm. but that's kind of what I got to bring to you. I got to, yeah. I'm bringing that to you and letting you love it. And for me, some of the practices believing you actually do like believing you actually do love me, even though right now my heart is wandering over here and would much rather be doing this. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And and I would say, I would even take it one step further and say, and, and in one real sense, all those things that come out of you, like those, none of that is you. Because, right? you know, it's interesting when Paul in Colossians three says, set your mind on things above. says so that's where Christ is. See at the right hand of God. But he also says that's where your life is hid. So part of what we're doing, we're contemplating is we're discovering, I actually am not the stuff I find in my soul. Who I am is who I am before the face of Jesus. Because actually he defines me, not this stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, that's so freeing, right? I get to walk in there and I say, my heart really loves YouTube right now. My heart really wants to do this other thing right now. Here it is, God, to discover that Boy, that's really great. So I'm going to say it to discover that that's not really me. Yeah. That totally. I'm the real me is something that actually God has made to love him. Mm-hmm. Is that? 
That's exactly right. And this is where I think this is actually where Luther offers a lot of gift to us, right? Because this is this is how this is this is Luther's great vision, right? It's oh, it's it's not something in me, but something outside of me. Like that's where hope is found. Because if you if you think you're gonna find hope within yourself, I mean, this is this is our culture, right? This is the this is why we're experiencing culture death. This is why you have such rampant mental health problems, because we think it's our not only our job but it's our necessity that we have to create a self that can flourish and thrive and survive in this world. And there's no more weighty lie than the idea that it's up to me to create a self. And it's even worse in the church. Like if I think I've got to create a Christian self, a good self, a holy self, whereas the gospel is no, no, Christ has done that. And it was in your sins that he died for you, not your goodness. <laughs> and he's so you come to him in your sin because he this, is your hope. Yeah. This may be a little bit of a rabbit trail, but one of the things that has that exploring contemplation and this the tradition of it has opened up for me is I grew up in a evangelical kind of fundamentalist background. A lot of good that I found from that, but the dis the discovery that I it somehow didn't feel right to believe that who I really am is God's beloved creation, God's beloved son. I think people told me that, but implicitly it wasn't okay to believe it. Yeah. And some of the reaction I think people have to, well, contemplation is with God in the temple. Well, the only way you get in the temple with God is because he has washed you clean and you are supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. And he, and the real you is the one who is washed clean and supposed to be there. You're not there. You know, God's not kind of, well, I'm going to let him in. You know, he wants you <laughs> yeah. there. Mm -hmm. And some of the pushback I've gotten is people saying, that doesn't sound right. I can't believe that God wants me in the temple with him. And that reorienting, re God reorients my heart a lot when I, okay, I'm just going to, you said it earlier. This is reality. I'm in the temple. God yeah. wants me here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, you know, this is where I worry that we we really struggle with the notion of holiness. Mm. And, and we really struggle with the notion that God has, he, like, you know, I, I think sometimes we think Jesus is joking with some of the stuff he says. <laughs> like, he's not, like, right. when he says, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. And so I think we look at losing our lives as if the goal is you're just going to, have to lose your lives. But he says, no, no, the goal is finding your life. Like you find it in him or my power is made perfect in weakness. I can't tell you how many people demonize power or say we should give ourselves to weakness. No, no, no. The passage is very clear. God's power is known in your weakness. It doesn't, the goal is not weakness, right? But we reduce all these things down and I think with holiness, one of the one of the big mistakes most people make when most people hear the word holiness or they hear the word sanctification, they what they replace it in their minds with the word virtue or goodness. Whereas Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1:30, Christ is your sanctification. And the vast majority of passages in the New Testament that talk about sanctification use it in the past tense. You have been sanctified. The author of Hebrews ratchets it up, says, once and for all, you have been sanctified, <laughs> right? And, you know, that's good news because if you weren't, you couldn't draw near into the temple. Only sanctified things have access to the temple. And in Ephesians 2.18, he says, you have access. 
in Christ Jesus, right? Because you are his, you are now ushered in. And, you know, it's one of the most, I think, astonishing thing that God does. And you see this when Jesus prays the high priestly prayer at the end of John 17, John 17, 26, when he prays, you know, father, and he's asking his father to love, love his, love his people. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't just say, father, just love them. He says, give them the love with which you loved me. And so God's love is so effulgent. It is so overflowing in fullness that he actually cracks open his, his internal love and pulls us into it. Now to embrace that, it kind of has to displace us from the center of our lives. We have to lose our lives to find them. But what we discover, to use von Balthasar's lovely phrase, we discover ourselves afloat on an entirely different element, namely the love of God. And there's something else that upholds us there. I think a lot of us are in our hearts trying to kind of hold ourselves up so we don't collapse. And Jesus is saying, there's, there's actually a better way. <laughs> there's, it, yeah. <laughs> it occurs to me then that contemplation, as we're discussing it, is a huge act of faith to, to mm -hmm. actually trust that I can be there with God and just be there. Mm -hmm. So That's right. I, yeah. I definitely want to get to the question what is the distinction between Christian contemplation and some of the new agey, some of the other stuff that's going on out there? I don't mean to just shift us real quick, but I'd like to get to that before I forget. So Yeah, how... well, I mean, I would actually, they have nothing in common whatsoever. I mean, virtually nothing. You know, typically the idea of kind of emptying yourself is going to be heightened because there's kind of an annihilation of self in, in the Eastern tradition where you just don't find that in Christianity. You find a displacement of self you find a death and resurrection of self in christianity right you, so you find galatians 2:20. it is no longer i who live but christ in me but then he's going to go on and say but the i the life i now live right so that's still the i that is being regrounded even though it's been displaced and so that's not there and, and i would say the focus can never be contemplation as such so what we're going to find in, in new age and east we're going to find a lot of focus on the act of contemplation I don't think Christians should actually focus on the act of contemplation because it gets things backwards. The whole focus is on, on God. It's not getting contemplation right. It's, it's being in the presence of God and drawing near. And so it's an embracing the gospel that in Christ I have access and that I can then draw near and present myself to God. And this is just Romans 12.1, present your bodies as living sacrifices sacrifices by the way you know this is another important image i think like sacrifices aren't pagan for for whatever reason christians suddenly become pagans when we start talking about sacrifices quite often like sacrifices weren't to kind of placate an angry deity after the garden the only way back into god's presence is through cherubim and through blood the tabernacle gets set up to have vehicles that transform us to be capable of the presence of God. So you have the blood of the animals. We actually become vicariously the animals are translated into the smoke through the altar and go through the two cherubim on the altar back into the presence of God. So the, the whole tabernacle system was actually a movement of ascending to God and drawing near. The book of Hebrews picks this up, and that's why the imperative of Hebrews is therefore draw near boldly ascend that's just what sacrifices did they they help you ascend we're trying to get up mount sinai in a sense here 
And so in a similar sort of way, all Christian practice is, is me offering myself, drawing near through the blood of Christ now as one who's been caught up in Christ and setting my mind on reality in light of that. So it really is the, the whole of it is, you know, it's not like contemplating God is and therefore not other things, but it's contemplating God so that you see everything else. The contemplation of God should allow us to, to, to see reality for what it is. You know, one of the old adages about stained glass windows is fitting, I think. You know, stained glass windows aren't paintings. You're not supposed to look at them. They're windows. You're supposed to look through them. Right? You're supposed to see through the window to what the world actually looks like if you have the eyes of faith. So that when you leave church, right, you look and you go, whoa, the 12 are reigning over and you see angels. You see all this. They're supposed to help you see the world. That's what contemplation does, which is why it is one of the chief acts of faith, because in setting your mind on God, you're also inherently seeing the world and going, oh, my goodness, as I'm driving down the freeway, the last really are first and the first really are last. That actually is what is true of this world, even though with my natural eyes, I think, yeah, but is that true? <laughs> like I, so it seems like that guy's getting ahead and, you know, and I feel, you know. Well, then I have to then continually go back to the truth of Lord. I, I believe, but help, look at all this unbelief. There's so much unbelief here. And so it, it isn't this emptying. It isn't, it isn't an attempt to kind of conquer myself. Like if I can just conquer my wandering mind, conquer, like, no, that's not what it is. You, you are transformed face to face with Jesus. There's no other place you're transformed. That's where you're transformed as a Christian. Contemplation is the act of standing face to face with Jesus and offering yourself and, and attending then to everything else in light of that. And so I would say without Christ, without the spirit, contemplation makes absolutely no sense and in a Christian mode. And so it's not me kind of navigating things. It's not me trying to generate an experience. I mean, one of the great idolatries of spiritual practices is trying to create an experience. It's not my job. If God wants to send me into the desert, praise God. How do I contemplate you here? <laughs> not how in the world do I get out of the desert? And so it's, you know, that's where it's going to be very, very, very different. I, I'm not trying to recollect some other place or some other reality. I'm not trying to get out of this reality. I'm trying to actually live into reality well. And so it's, it's always kind of tinged with the gospel. Yeah. Well, that's, so that's the distinction you made earlier. And in the book, you guys make it as well, that contemplation is something distinct from con contemplative prayer. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing is that one of the distinctions is the mistake to make the practice or the method or the, this is why there's so much warning off of technique within the Christian tradition, totally. because as soon as you make it a technique, now it's, trying to gen up an experience, trying mm -hmm. to transact with God so that I'm the sacrifice that appeases the deity, <laughs> where what's so uniquely different I'm hearing you say about Christian contemplation is in, in a certain sense, it's not a thing at all. It's not a, it's not a method. It's not an action other than, I mean, it is in the sense that it's a reception and that's, that's a verb yeah. and a sentence, but it's, but it's not a, well, yeah, I mean, there's no other way to say it. And you've been saying it many ways, but it, 
the direction it flows is from God to me, not from me to God. And I think that sounds like the fundamental difference between the way Christians think about this and the way a pagan worldview thinks about this is yeah. it comes from them to God rather than from God to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It, so it is always responsive in that regard. Mm. We are responding to what God has already done. And then we are just drawing near and entering into it. Or to use the kind of liturgical phrase, we're lifting our hearts to the Lord. That's the movement of, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's that's the view of reality, right? That you're talking about. Like the stained glass window shows me that that the structure of reality is actually such that God the creator loves mm -hmm. and provides. My natural eyes make it look like I gotta do it myself. Everything's yeah. going to hell in a handbasket, but but this whole reorienting, uh, recalibrating is what you said earlier. Is mm -hmm. I'm in the I'm in the presence of God, the loving God, yeah. and I don't need to do anything. That's right, and, and you know one of the ways this shows up. So you mentioned the book Beloved Dust that I co-wrote with one of my dear friends, and so in that book we try to give an evangelical account of wordless prayer, which is what we typically call contemplative prayer. And I do a little bit more of an academic version in the Embracing Contemplation book. But for me, the way that shows up, and this is where you'll see it very different from something like Centering Prayer, which is a very technique-driven account of, of contemplative prayer. For me, wordless prayer is, is recollecting the truth that before I utter a word in prayer, before I say what I need, before I share my heart, before I share my worries, before I say anything, the son has already spoken everything to the father. The spirit has grown from the bottom of my heart, every struggle, every fear, everything. And I can actually rest wordlessly on, the, on their words in prayer. And so it, there's a kind of contemplative prayer that is simply, I, I actually say it's, a, it's actually a one-worded prayer, which is just the soul saying, amen. And, but again, it's trust, it's faith, right? It's trust that their words are enough. And, and again, part of one of the things that makes this a, a, a disconcerting mirror for, for me, and I'm sure for many of us, is that I realize, but my wordiness makes me feel like I can control the thing. My wordiness is me like Adam in the garden, wheeling and dealing and trying to manipulate God and get him on my side. You know, it's like, I realize, wow, in prayer, like I just, all sorts of neurotic stuff comes out. It's like, can I trust that the intercession of the son and the spirit is enough? And in that sense, I think most people have experienced this in profound grief where they say there's just no word and they, they kind of know what it means to be upheld by the son and the spirit and the intercession of others. But there is a way to kind of I think practice that as well. Well, yeah, I love that image of, well, it's not an image, it's a reality of to rest wordlessly on the words that the mm. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are speaking for and over and about me. Mm -hmm. Gosh, okay, that, <laughs> that, I think that does bring me to like the, here's the really practical question. Mm. I can be really academic too, and we can talk big words and everything, but, <laughs> but here's sure. the question. Mm. I would love to rest wordlessly on the words that the Holy Spirit and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are speaking. How the, do I do that? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, tell me practically. My my co-host who's not here, he's he likes to call himself a blue-collar uh, theologian. <laughs> he works in the oil fields. He doesn't have a lot of time to uh, sit down and do this. So he's always kicking 
on this. He's always like, how do I do this? Yeah. 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 So what do you say to that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the funny, one of the funniest lines that I, that I think is in, in the book, the cloud of unknowing, which is again, the source book for centering prayer, which again, I, I think a little differently than they do. And I don't have to get into the reasons why, but one of the things I love that the author says is whatever you do, don't try to do this for over 30 minutes at a time. And I thought that was hilarious. So like, I just love that. Like whatever you did, 30 minutes, that's top. And it's like, well, these are monks talking to two other monks, you know, and like, if that's your full-time thing and they're, they're telling you not to do it. So I do think that shorter is better in this regard in terms of entering into this kind of practice. But I would say what's going to happen is you're going to offer, you're going to present yourself. You're going to intend to be in the presence of God. So what we call around here, a prayer of intention, like Lord, I'm yours and just present yourself to God and, and then just trust in their prayers and your heart's going to hate all of this and all sorts of things are going to ooze out of your heart. And so then take each of them and just, just grab them in your mind and hold them and just present them. And a lot of your time, that's what you're going to be doing is just continually presenting these things to the Lord. And then the key is to not judge it and whatever it is, allow it to be what it is. You know, I think again, a lot of these practices, we get so frustrated because we, we have faulty expectations. If the Lord wants it to be a time of profound purgation of your soul and you just go, oh, I was a mess, man. I just felt like I was vomiting all the way. Praise God. If it's just absolute contemplation of, and consolation, I should say, and kind of profound, great, praise God. But it's not your job to make it one or the other. It's your job to be present in the truth. And so that's, I, I would say, how, how you do it. In the, in the book where prayer becomes real that you mentioned, John and I have laid out a, a certain formal kind of prayer called the prayer of recollection. That's one example. And we give, we actually, every chapter ends with a prayer project. We have, you give you prompts and we have some in the, in the appendices as well. So that's, that would probably be a better way to start instead of just jumping first directly into contemplation is to start with a prayer that is a little more kind of navigating the truth of the soul since a lot of what contemplation will be will inherently be that starting with a little bit of baby steps in that regard and kind of attending to the various ways you're tempted not to be present. Yeah. I, and I will definitely put a link to that, the where prayer becomes real in the show notes as well as the other books, but that I got to read the chapter on prayer of intention mm. and that struck me what you're saying there of not to judge what's going on in your heart, but just to present them to God. That's like the subtitle of the book is how honesty with God transforms your soul, right? Like that, that to me is the, the hardest part about this before I can even get to the wordless place. It's that I come with so much judgmental baggage, but to actually believe that Jesus doesn't judge me that way, that I can bring that baggage to him. And that prayer of intention really made sense to me in that sense of it's like, the only thing I need to do here is be honest about being here and just be like, here I am, take it or leave it. And he <laughs> yeah. takes it. Mm. And, and this brings us back to what we were saying earlier. He not only takes it, but he does away with the stuff that's not me. And I like that. I don't know how to explain that, but so... That's cool. Thank you very much for talking to me, Dr. Strobel. I, I'm, this has been very exciting. There's a lot of things I want to ask you that we probably don't have time to go through. <laughs> um, and you've been very generous with your time. Is there anything 
one of the things I like to do is just ask, is there something I should be asking? What am I missing? What should I be asking? I would say one of the key questions to ask is when you draw near to God, and you can just think of that in different ways. You know, there's communal liturgical ways to do that. There's contemplation, there's prayer, there's, you know, whatever disciplines, whatever things you're giving yourself to. When I draw near to God, what is, what is given me implicitly or subconsciously the expectations for that time? So let me give you an example. I, I think a lot of, a lot of my students, for instance, when they go to prayer, they can't be honest because they don't think God either can or wants to see that part of themselves because they at some point became convinced that their dad didn't or couldn't handle that part of themselves. And so the second they say father, they have this set of concepts that fathers can and cannot hear or do and do not want to hear. And that get, that kind of shapes what is possible in this space. So growing up in the megachurches for me, it was liturgically, it was, I come into this space and, and the, the kind of expectation is I should be, I should be filled with excitement. And if I'm not, the temptation is to try to generate excitement or to try in prayer to use one of the axioms of our book that, that my mentor John Coe first taught me was, you know, prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. And so there's all sorts of things that, that subconsciously tell us, no, 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 you're not being good here. It's time to be good. And, and so be figure out a way to be watchful of your heart with whatever practice you're giving yourself to is what are some subconscious ways that I'm telling myself, this is what goodness looks like here. This is what will happen if you do it right. And, and then take that to God and say, wow, God, look at this. And maybe you're praying a Psalm and you have the experience of God can't hear this or God doesn't want to hear this. the Bible. Like he doesn't want to hear the, you know, it's, and we, we kind of realize that, wow, I don't, I, I actually have somehow internalized this weird notion of what God can and cannot hear. That has nothing to do with scriptures, nothing to do with God is. I, I'm amazed how many of my particularly male students have received from their dad what reverence is. They have no idea it comes from dad. They assume it comes directly from God. This is not reverent. What honesty? And I have to remind them, you know, the opposite of honesty is not irreverence, but dishonesty. <laughs> like, so you think God wants you to not be you? Like, but it, it, and it's so, it doesn't even make sense, but we've never been forced to grapple with those things. And it's amazing how much our subconscious beliefs and expectations shape, particularly the presence of God, because the presence of God has a way of awakening those deep things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Our, the image I have of God and the expectations I have or the measurements that I'm bringing in of how mm. this experience is supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Thank you. Well, this has been great. And I could talk for hours, but I want to be... be uh, respectful of your time and thank you for being willing to do this what could i ask you to close us with a prayer would that of be course. okay yeah yeah Great. thanks brandon of course and it's so yeah. good being with you on here yeah yeah let, let, let us pray <sighs> father lord I, I i just think of those listening who may have heard something that has has woken something in their hearts that 
And maybe there's excitement. Maybe there's fear of, of something maybe possibly being true that they have struggled to believe before. And Lord, I pray that, that you would simply provide the faith to draw near in the truth of who we are. Lord, you truly are our only hope. <laughs> there's, there's no hope in us fixing our lives or generating goodness or somehow creating a self. Or there's no hope in that. Lord, we need you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to the truth that you have truly opened your own love to us, your own person, that you've given us your very life that we can share in and be partakers of the divine nature. And Lord, in that, that, or before I utter a word, Lord, you know it, you've already interceded for me, Lord Jesus, my great high priest, our great high priest, Lord, that you already have brought this to the Father. And spirit, who groans with groanings too deep for words in the deepest places of our souls that you've already groaned out. And Lord, you've, you've already not only seen and heard, but experienced the ways my soul groans, wondering, Lord, how long, how long, oh Lord, open us to those places, Lord. Open us to where deep calls out to deep. And Lord, bring us before the face of Jesus, because he is our life, he is our hope, and he is our all. And we draw near, not in our names, but in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Listeners, thanks for joining us. May the grace of Christ go with you wherever the road takes you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit us at signpostend.org. While you're there, sign up for our e-newsletter and we'll send you a free e-book. Also, a big thanks to all of our supporters. Signpost N is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry, and we exist only because of our generous donors who make everything we do possible. Please consider supporting us with your recurring donation. Visit signpostend.org slash donate.